0: Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and the diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and in today's episode, we're joined by Ariel, an ICU nurse in Philadelphia. She talks about her unique background into medicine and how she actually got her bachelor's degree in hospitality management before deciding to go to nursing school. We also talk about the anti-Asian bias that has spiked due to the pandemic and her personal experiences dealing with it. Ariel is passionate about advocacy on her platform and Instagram, and we talk in particular about her advocacy for Black Lives Matter. She shares how important it is for different minority groups to come together to support each other in the fight against racism. All in all, this was a really interesting conversation, and it really showed me how intertwined social justice and medicine really are. I hope you enjoy. All right, glad to have you here, Ariel. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Um thank you again so much for for being here. Um we've talked to a lot of nurses on the show so far and it's just very interesting to hear, you know, their perspectives of how things are going. And I think you share a really interesting perspective because you, you know, are are a relatively new nurse like you started during the pandemic and I think that itself has has thrown a whole another layer on on being a nurse and the challenges with that. Um, but I think we should, we can just start like taking it all the way back. How did you begin your nursing journey and how did you decide that that was the path that you wanted to go through?
1: Yeah. So I am, my background is pretty unconventional. I I earned my first bachelor's degree in hospitality management and I worked in the restaurant um, industry for about five years prior to becoming a nurse. And what made me want to go into healthcare was a personal experience, which I think a lot of nurses, especially second degree nurses, have. Um, I'm very close to my grandparents. They raised me growing up. And when they started to get older and they got sick, I was their one of their main support persons. Um, when my grandpa was in and out of the hospital, in and out of nursing homes and um, long-term acute care hospitals, I was always there beside him, I was always there when he was in the ED, um, you know, right alongside with my grandma who um, also got sick along the way. You know, she was getting old too and she couldn't care for him the way that um, she would have wanted to if she were younger. So my, I guess my introduction to the world of medicine and healthcare kind of began then. And from my different experiences being there for my grandparents, my interactions with physicians and nurses and um, nurse practitioners and different healthcare settings um, that kind of made me question whether I could see myself working in that in that world and whether I felt like I had something to add to the world of healthcare and I felt like I did. So I started to explore the different roles. I mean, I think one of the first roles a lot of folks who about making a career career switch into healthcare think of is, you know, do I want to become a doctor? And that was something that I ruled out relatively early in my decision-making process. And that's, and I think the reason why nursing appealed to me was because of the amount of time that nurses who were taking care of my grandparents spent with me and the amount of time that they made such impactful impressions on me as somebody who wasn't in healthcare. And, you know, the at the end of the day, when I asked myself who I felt was there for the patient, there for the family the most, it was the nurse. And that's what kind of helped me make my decision as far as what I wanted to do in healthcare.
0: Right, kind of the long-term patient relationships was something that you valued a lot.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's, people say this all the time about nurses, but, you know, who spends the most time with patients, who spends the most time with families, um, who knows the patient the best, and it is often the nurse because of just the sheer amount of time that we spend with our patients and with their families, just because of the nature of the work. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, physicians and PAs and NPs don't know the patient, but Mm -hmm. there's a different, level of familiarity and I think intimacy that nurses have with their patients.
0: Right. And I think like, like you were saying, like, especially in case, in terms of like, if you're seeing a patient over a long time, I think that the interesting thing that you're seeing is like, you get to know that patient more than just their patient life. Like you, you get to really dig into, you know, what they find interesting. And, and that's, that's something that I find really interesting about healthcare because it's not all about you know, treating your patient with, you know, the medications or with, you know, that kind of things. It's about also being that kind of mental and emotional support where you are kind of responsible to know like the things that they enjoy, the things that, you know, they like talking about. And, and I think that's a really interesting aspect that you get as a nurse.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, when, when I was early in my decision-making process and trying to figure out what in healthcare I wanted to do, I looked up, I just Googled difference between nursing and um, between nurses and doctors. And one of the first things I think, because I originally, um, I was, I entered nursing school with the intention of leaving with my masters to be a nurse practitioner. And one of the first things that, you know, someone Googles is the difference between nurse practitioners and physicians. And the textbook answer has always been the medical model, Often focuses on you know pathology, and the nursing model focuses on the patient as a whole. And I think it's that's like I said a textbook answer, and I don't. I think it it makes it very black and white, but I don't think that the reality of the difference between nursing and medicine is that way. Because um, you know my husband is a physician, and he was trained in the DO model, um, which absolutely looks at patients as a whole picture in a holistic way. And not that MDs don't either, but I I I just after becoming a nurse, I felt like that was a very incomplete and black and white way of thinking about it. But on the other hand, in nursing school, I did feel like there was such a large emphasis on treating the patient as a person and you know the the all of the intersectional ways that make this person who they are. And it doesn't, we have to absolutely treat the pathology and, you know, the lab values are important. Um, All the numbers are important, but just as important is the person. Um, And I think that nurses are very strong in being able to care for their patients in that way. Um, An example that I have is a very recent example. Um, I'm a new nurse, as, as we've discussed, and I work in an ICU, specifically a COVID ICU, and you know, with COVID patients, the number one thing is often respiratory-related because COVID is a respiratory virus. Um, and so, you know, normally, if a person's O2 level dips below ninety-two percent, that's when we, you know, intervene with some sort of oxygen therapy. Um, we're finding that with COVID patients they will often desaturate to levels of 86, 88%, um, but they don't look like they're in respiratory distress. So the threshold for, to intervene with more aggressive interventions is a little bit lower now with COVID patients. Mm-hmm. And so an example I have is a COVID patient I had where they their oxygen level was you know 88%. So a lot of the mm-hmm. medicine teams, the medicine team that I work with um, they might not. They're often not inclined to intervene unless they, the patient is in distress. Like they're saying right. that they can't breathe, or they're they're tachypnic, which means that they're breathing really quickly. Um, and so, the resident I was working with, you know, saw the numbers, just looked at the numbers on the screen, and said, "They're sitting 88 percent. You know, they're mentating well. Um, we're not going to intervene." But as the nurse who has spent, who has gone into the room several times. Right. This person might be mentating, they might be able to tell you who they are and where they are. But if you just look at the person, he, you know, the patient looks uncomfortable, the patient does not look like they're does not look like they don't need help, you know. And so one of the things that I often say to the residents or the providers is look at the patient. How do they look to you? Don't look at the computer. Don't look at the numbers. How do they look to you? Because that is just as important of an indicator of whether or not we need to intervene as the numbers are.
0: Right. That That's really, really eye-opening because it's it, it's interesting to see like those, those numbers. And I was actually talking to a physician recently who's been practicing for over 30 years. And he, he really talked about this point where like there's been such an advent of like testing and all these procedures that have come out, you know, in the last couple of years that have... You know, giving you positive, negative results. You know, showing you something or not showing you something, where he felt like the examination aspect of the you know visit was not valued as much as those test results, and so he he expressed concern in that. And, and you're saying a very similar thing, and I think that's that's really interesting to think about. You know, in the sense of you're you're just looking at the numbers instead of looking at the patient as a whole. In in terms of education, though, like while you're going through nursing school, how does I guess. How does the nursing program emphasize a um, or emphasize this value of of looking at the patient in particular, and you know, looking at them as a whole like that?
1: Yeah, um, I think one of the first things that comes to mind for me is um, dietary habits, which I think is something that oftentimes is oversimplified in terms of when we instruct patients on what to do, when we instruct them to eat healthy, when we instruct them to get more physical exercise, it's really easy to prescribe that because it's, I mean, I think most adults in America could be eating healthier and, you know, could be exercising more. There's no denying that, but without addressing the barriers to how a person for why a person might not be eating healthy or for why they aren't exercising I think is is just as important because if my patient is you know a custodial worker who works um 8 to 10 hours a day who you know has three children to feed who from his work as a custodial worker does not make that much in terms of you know, his monthly salary. And if if the decision for him, the the dilemma is, am I going to work more so that I can make more money to provide for my family, which might mean that I don't have enough time to cook, to go grocery shopping, to go exercising. Um, you know, if if that's a decision that my patient has to make, oftentimes, they just simply can't find the time to go grocery shopping and to learn how to cook or to pay for a gym membership or to find the time to go running or, you know, things like that. Those barriers are very important to discuss. And if we don't address that, we're just going to be handing out these, you know, suggestions for our patients without any real way to help them achieve these goals. And that's, I think that's one of the things that um, I learned in nursing school in terms of approaching the patient as a whole person
0: right and in those situations because you bring up a really um i think common case to like you know i've shadowed family medicine doctors all the time and that's the, what you said was exactly what i hear you know physicians telling the patients like you know you need to get more exercise you need to you know make these lifestyle chains and you just see like a nodding by the patient but like when you really think about it are you know are they really doing those um you know when they when they're back home are they really following through with those are they even able to um And so what as, you know, as a nurse, what kind of, I guess, workarounds do you see for patients that are unable to do those things?
1: I think number one, like I said, is, is identifying those barriers. And number two is having an actual dialogue with the patients to see what they feel is attainable and what they feel is is realistic. And oftentimes, um, social work. If if you have the luxury of having a social worker, you know, in the system that you work in, involving them is very, very helpful. Um, number two is just coming up with like baby steps and coming up with a plan that, you know, we might not be able to change this person person's diet over the course of days or weeks, but, you know, helping them formulate a plan to achieve this in baby steps is something that nurses are often able to do because we have we're able to spend more time with the patients. Um, but it's it's all about I feel having a dialogue with the patient, meeting them where they are, and you know being there to help them come up with a plan to live a healthier life, to make these lifestyle changes.
0: Right. Something that's like actually like plausible and, and mm-hmm. something they can follow through to. Gotcha. Kind of moving towards, um, you know, your, your your practice as a nurse. And, you know, 2020 has been a big learning year for everybody. But for you in particular, you've had, I bet, quite the experiences, you know, starting work as a nurse, um, you know, in the middle of pandemic. So just talk me through, I guess, like how how has that experience been?
1: It's been... Overwhelming yeah. in one. If I could, if I could describe it in one word, it's been overwhelming. Um, I I'm told all the time by my coworkers that if they started their nursing career in the pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, in the ICU, they probably would have walked out. Uh, I was told that the other night when I was at work. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that has struck me the most is the way that we. Interact with death in the ICU, especially in the COVID ICU, um, and I don't think it's it's just with the COVID ICU. And what I mean is, I I've like written about this and talked about this on my mm-hmm. platform before, just because of how much it's been impacting me. But you know, death and the ICU has always gone hand in hand, um, and you know, learning how to deal with patient death is something that I knew that I had to prepare myself for if I were to work in critical care. But the way that COVID has changed that is that oftentimes our patients die alone. Um, They die with their family members on FaceTime with the nurse holding the phone or the iPad up to their face so that their family can say goodbye. Um, And that is not something that I was prepared for. it's, I think that has been one of the most difficult parts of COVID um, in the ICU. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's not something that I I can't yeah. say enough I wasn't Cause, prepared for. Yeah,
0: right. Because like, it, how do you even prepare for that without, you know, having the experience for it? Like, it just seems so difficult, especially when you're coming from a place where you don't have you know years of working as a nurse you know seeing you know the occasional death here and there and then all of a sudden you're seeing it like almost like on a daily basis Mm -hmm. or you know and and more recently even more and i think it's it's a really important dialogue to have because you know the case numbers we look a lot at the numbers right and then we're seeing like oh the death toll is this high this many people are dying but then i find it really interesting that you know health professionals like yourself are seeing those numbers in Person, and you're seeing who the people are behind those those numbers. And Um, how they're dying. Exactly of how they're dying. And one of the things that that I dislike about the media is, or mainstream media, is the fact that you know it's you're not hearing enough of stories from yourself, like yourself um, talking about how really gruesome and how like sad it really is for for seeing you know all these people having to say goodbye to their family members on Facetime. And I don't know. It's a, I think it's just a hard topic to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it is, and it's. I don't think that. You know, and the thing is, with with critical care, especially because I work in a MICU, which is a medical ICU. Death is not always seen as a negative thing, especially in MICUs. Oftentimes you know you providers and you nurses see death as something that is is like a relief it's it's an end of suffering it's it's the end of you know all these heroic interventions to save a person who does not who might not have a very high quality of life if they were to survive um you know end of life discussions and um goals of care discussions are kind of like the specialty of the medical icu and oftentimes we don't see death as a bad thing but you know that's that's with that's a death bef- without covid you know where we're we're able to provide all these comforts and you know we're able to organize and schedule these visits for with family members so that they can be there they can hold their family members hand you know they they have closure in being able to see that their family member is at peace um and you know, just the closure of seeing a person, seeing a family member go and seeing them die and knowing that they're at peace in person is is a type of closure that so many family members don't get right now. You know, it's family members aren't even able to, they're not able to be in the hospital. They're not even able to be in the room when somebody dies. They just hear from us that they're gone from a complete stranger or to see on FaceTime. I, I can't imagine, you know, it's, it's traumatizing enough for healthcare workers, but I can't imagine how traumatizing that is for the family members. Right. Um, and that's one of the ways that COVID has, has changed healthcare right now.
0: Yeah. I completely agree. Um, it just, Cause like, I can, I can relate to that. Like, you know, I, I back, you know, my family's back in India. I, um, you know, there it's been, it's been pretty crazy. And Mm -hmm. especially earlier on, um, and, you know, one of my family members, you know, we actually were on FaceTime with them in the last, in the last moments. And it was just like, you know, this shouldn't be how it's like. And it was at a point where, you know, flight or air travel was not, like it was very restricted and things weren't allowed so the fact that we we're not even able to go you know see this person or even you know do any of the pro- progressions or anything that that is required um and just have to watch it all virtually it's just it's insane and having you know someone like seeing it like you're seeing it every single day must be like a whole nother um a whole nother aspect of that you know I don't want to talk about death too much you know but it oh, really yeah. is yeah it really it's, is it's it,
1: unfortunately it's just yeah. it's just such a big part of it is health and part of my work right now unfortunately. yeah especially
0: right now yeah exactly right now mm-hmm. it's just I don't know and you know I and I keep saying I don't want to talk about it but like one thing that really you know aggravates me a lot is the fact that people you know, deny, you know, the, the thing that aggravates me the most is that people deny the existence of the pandemic after all these cases. Mm-hmm. And these people of that have seen countless lives being lost to it. And it just, like, it just, I don't know what to do about it. You know, is there anything to do about it? I don't know, but.
1: I don't know either. I've yeah. I've had people in, in the ICU who are pandemic deniers. Um, really? Who are in the ICU. Or, you know, they, they, are anti-maskers, or you know, just don't believe believe in COVID, quote unquote. Um, and they're and in the ICU. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, know, you can't make this up. Like it's, it, I I've only personally met one of them, but I mean, it's, yeah, I'm sure nurses all over the country have had that experience.
0: Right and i kind of want to talk to you about something that that was really big earlier on in the pandemic and i want to hear your experiences on how it's you know progressed but you know as an, as an asian american especially in the beginning there was a large stigma against like asian americans and you know the the fact that the pandemic was you know originated in in china had a big impact on a lot of asian americans and there were videos and and things going viral on social media of of asian americans being you know hurt physically in public places and and all that all that kind of stuff And I think you've done a lot of outreach and a lot of advocacy in that regard. And I just want to hear about you, hear from you, what your experiences were, I guess, in the beginning and how it's changed throughout, you know, the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've had very personal experiences with this because in the beginning of the pandemic, um, so I started working as an ICU nurse in September, but Mm -hmm. I was um, helping with the Pennsylvania Department of Health's response to COVID in starting in March. So I was doing COVID tests for a few months and I I was reading and hearing about, you know, this anti-Asian bias that was happening around the country, but I didn't, it didn't really impact me until I, you know, there was one day where I, it was back in March, but I, I had woken up one morning after a day of testing and I was walking my dog and there was a man across the street from me who saw me and just started screaming racial slurs at me. And, you know, I, and saying something about the virus and, you know, I I didn't really hear everything he said. I just, in, in that moment, I was just like, I need to get out of here. So as a healthcare worker, as an Asian American healthcare worker, it just seems so ironic that anti-Asian bias was manifesting in that way and you know, impacting me in that way. Um, because it it really opened my eyes more to the the level and the strength of anti-Asian bias and racism in this country that continues to exist because, right. you know, I think a way that racism is unique to the Asian American community, is that we continue to be seen as the perpetual foreigner, um, no matter what? I mean, I'm—I've been—I was born in this country. I. The but the first thing that someone sees when they see me is an Asian face, and the automatic assumption is that I'm not from here, or that you know, it's. It, I think it's, racism impacts different communities of color very differently, and I think this is. One of the ways that racism Im uniquely impacts Asian Americans, um, and it just shows that you know anti-Asian bias is not new in this country. It's 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 been here since the beginning of you know since the from the beginning when Chinese laborers came to build railroads in this country, and it's it's always kind of been the same that we're that we're seen as these foreigners that don't belong. And no matter how, how successful we are in this country, no matter how, you know, all the accomplishments that members of the Asian American community achieve, we still continue to be seen as foreigners and as scapegoats for attacks. Um And that is something that, you know, I talk about a lot on my platform. And I, I discuss because I personally grew up in a very um in a predominantly asian american community and i was very much sheltered from this racism because i was surrounded by people who looked like me um but then you know moving to philadelphia and being actually feeling like a minority um because asian americans are only 5% of the population in the us um it's been very eye opening
0: right and and talking about your platform in general like i'm sure um you know you've, you've done really amazing things and like you, you said you've done a lot of a lot of you know work with with finding this anti-asian american bias and one thing that always you know is concerning to me on social media is the fact that people feel more free to say whatever they want in the sense that they're more free to be mean and be very like say things that they wouldn't say in person basically and you know through your platform and through um you know the people that you're reaching you've done a lot of good And have you had experiences where there are people that are just blatantly being like disrespectful, you know, against you on your platform and things like that?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, Not in the sense, I don't know if I've experienced necessarily um, anti-Asian racism, which I'm a little bit surprised at actually. Um, There was, I remember, I've definitely experienced microaggressions. Like I, I think I wrote about that incident where someone, that man was yelling, you know, mm-hmm. racial slurs at me. And I, I think a woman commented, well, what if you just wear sunglasses outside? Then maybe what? they won't know that you're Asian. And it's like, I think that's just, it's, it's, I that's mean, that's not it, the problem. Like <laughs> micro, microaggressions like that yeah. are, are what I experience, you know, it's, it's, more of an issue of maybe not being a racist rather than me hiding the fact that I'm an Asian American. Um, but I think, I actually, I think the, the backlash or the, you know, these incidents of folks being um, disrespectful have actually been more related to my advocacy for the black community um, mm. than it has been as an Asian person. Um, I think I've actually been, I've actually experienced more pushback from other Asians or other Asian Americans um, when I discuss, you know, my support for the Black community than anything else.
0: Mm. And is that kind of coming from a sense where like you're supporting that movement and like instead of like, I'm trying to, yeah. yeah.
1: I think so. And I think it's, it's, it points to how, you know, I've written about this before, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people see justice and equity as like a piece of cake where if this Mm -hmm. community has it, then we get less of it. And I think that's that's just a tool that, you know, white supremacy uses to further divide communities of color. And it, I mean, talk about, you know, the model minority myth. That's like textbook example of how, often, you know, communities of color are pitted against each other where, you know, white supremacists will hold up Asian Americans as this example of, you know, the model minority. If Asian Americans can be successful in this country, then racism must not exist. And then, so that implies that, you know, there's something wrong with the communities of color, specifically Black and Oftentimes Latinx and Native American communities who struggle in this company in this in this country, that you know there's something wrong with you if you can't be successful, if Asian Americans can be su- successful. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Asian Americans buy into that and buy into that narrative that you know my family worked hard, and my parents came here with nothing and look at how successful they are. So, you know why are you advocating for this community? And I think there's a lot of work to be done in the Asian American right. community to fight back against that.
0: Right. And it's, it's a really interesting point that you bring up because the, you've probably heard of them, but Wong Fu Productions, have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Like, the, Yeah. So they're one of my favorite, you know, video production. They, uh,
1: they're, they were made in this SGV, my hometown, which I'm very oh. proud to be from. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. No, they, they're they amazing. And they I actually, love
1: Fu.
0: yeah, they I've been watching them for the last, I don't know, like, at least like seven years or something and Mm -hmm. they deserve way more views and such than they get. And that's, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But they made this one and you, you've probably seen it, but they made this one short film about, it was like a, it was you know asian americans you know two like a brother and a sister and their i think father at a dinner table and so the daughter was like you know i'm going out to the march i want to like it was during like black lives matter like the, a lot of the um you know marches were occurring during this time and she was like I, I want to go out to the march you know support uh the movement and then her father was like you know why are you going out like you know you don't want it's not safe you know why are you going out for that and and the whole I guess moral of the story is the idea of like you need to all people of color are in similar situations and you need to be able to support other causes if you want to support your own cause and you know that that's that's really interesting because I think that's the future that that we're you know hopefully going to move towards where it's know everyone of course has their own issues but you have to advocate for each other's issues in order to get your own issues out um and uh and and solved
1: yeah um, i mean that was one of my i so i was on a panel um to discuss anti-asian bias in in the u.s um i think it, it was a few months ago but it included um notable asian americans such as george takei um, tai Ma, um, who's an actor, um, Dion Lim, who's a journalist in San Francisco. Um, and I, bef- when I was preparing pr- for the panel, which was hosted on Zoom, I, I kept telling myself, you know, if I'm going to say one thing, it's that Asian Americans need to be supportive of the Black community and the Black Lives Matter um, movement. If, you know, if we... Are asking for allies against this anti-Asian bias. We need to be allies as well to our brothers and sisters. And that I, I was like, that's the, if but that, there's one thing I'm gonna say yeah. on this. <laughs> um, that's what I I feel like I have to say because, you know, I just felt like all all the Asian Americans that I saw that I met who were so fired up about this, you know anti-asian bias and this hate towards asian americans when they were speaking up about this, you know, if you don't fight for another community, i i just felt like it was so hypocritical. and you know, this the same force that is, you know, perpetuating this violence both physical and verbal against asian americans is the same violence that is killing black men and women and children in this country and that force is white supremacy and it's not white supremacy is not just manifested in you know racial slurs which i think is is like the, one of the most extreme forms of it violence and you know hate speech is on one end of it and the other end of it is microaggressions and it it's the same spectrum that but it impacts different communities differently and I felt like that was some that was something that you know I I feel very passionate about in discussing and educating um, my audience about in you know on Instagram.
0: Right, and I have a question for you about that with regards to um, social media. This last year, I know in particular, um, social media, especially with everyone you know being at home quarantining and trying you know not to go out too much, has been a very Big um, force of advocacy for you know Black Lives Matter for you know sh- social justice in general, and of, of course it always has. But but there was a period of time, and and even now, where like it, it's the majority of the things that you're seeing are these topics. So you know, as you know, an influencer like your, like yourself, and someone who does social justice and has been doing it on their platform for a very long time, how have your experiences been? you know, doing that?
1: It's been, it's been overall very positive for me. Um And I think it's because I've met a lot of really great people on this platform. Um As somebody who um, got married relatively early and has not dated that many people, I kind of look at it as like my online dating experience. But platonically because I'm meeting so many different people and I'm, I'm building like actual friendships and relationships with these folks. And it's, it's been such a, a great experience in that sense, because I feel like I've made so many friends on Instagram um, you know, people that I would have never met otherwise because of distance because of, you know, other barriers. But um, overall, it's been such a great experience meeting other people who you know, feel as passionately and strongly about the things that I'm passionate about, um, especially because a lot of them are healthcare workers and they're people of color. And we, I, I just feel like a sense of of solidarity in meeting these folks and being able to talk with them and get to know them on on a level other than just you know social justice. But um, I think that's been the overall my overall experience with social media. Um, You know, there's always gonna be people that um, try to, who are, you know, trolls, or they try to um, diminish your my work or my um, efforts to, you know, bring conversations about race and social justice to the forefront, especially for the Asian American community, because I think historically, I think especially as someone who grew up where I did, I didn't see many Asian Americans um, speaking out about these things. And that's something that I want to change. Um, But it's been overall a fantastic experience.
0: Right. And in terms of like for you, you know, everyone has their own goals with their platforms. But what are your um, your goals that you hope to accomplish through your platform?
1: I think like I said, one of the first things is, you know, normalizing these traditionally taboo um, conversations and not just about race, but um, race is one of the most important things right now. But as an Asian American woman, you know, discussions about sex positivity and, you know, mental health, things like that. I want to, I I want to normalize conversations like this. And I want to see more Asian American women, you know, talking about these things on social media to normalize it for, you know, young Asian American women and young Asian American children, um, who might be on this platform. And I think that's, that's one of the most important things, but also I think, um, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, and no, you're fine. What was the other thing I, I was
0: say? A really interesting <laughs> thing though, like because I, I I usually ask this question to everyone, you know, what are your ultimate goals and things, and it, the thing about social media that is really interesting is that it's very unpredictable. You know, you never know mm-hmm. when you're going to peak an interest in a particular thing, or you're going to you know dive deeper into something that you might not have even been interested in before, and so things change so easily that even after you set goals, like you know, you can you end up being somewhere else, and you you know wanting to spread spread other things. But I really like what you're talking about because, um, you know, being, uh, you know, Indian and being in that area in that. Um, uh, upbringing, You know, I, I relate to a lot of the things in, in, in the sense of like, you know, mental health and things like that, that need to be mm-hmm. spoken up more about in communities like ours. And so that is, I think, a very valuable thing and very empowering. And it, that's the thing I love about, you know, social media is the fact that you're able to do that in wherever you are in the world, you're able to see these things wherever you are. And it really is, it really has the ultimate reach.
1: Yeah. I, um, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is, um, are you part of the Facebook group, subtle Asian traits?
0: I am. I love it.
1: (laughs) I, I love subtle Asian traits. And I think that's, that's another kind of goal that I have for my platform inspired by subtle Asian traits is to make Asian Americans feel seen, um, and to, to feel like a connection or, you know, that, that, that moment of joy when you're like oh my gosh that's so true yeah 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 when we talk about you know upbringing yeah yeah and I think um that's something that I I want to incorporate into my my um platform as well you know the most important things to me to discuss are racism you know sexism um things those important issues but I incorporate a lot of I feel content that I want to cater towards the Asian American community Mm -hmm. because I want Asian Americans to feel seen. And like, there's a, it's a safe space for them basically. Um, And so I talk all the time about, you know, how um, experiences growing up as an Asian American, Mm -hmm. um, both the traumatic parts of growing Mm -hmm. up as a child of an immigrant, but also the really funny parts of it. And um, oftentimes the traumatic and the, funny, often intersect. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's another goal of mine on social media.
0: Awesome. And in terms of your practice in general, do you have any goals in, in terms of what you want to do with nursing? Do you want to, you know, specialize into um, any particular type of nursing or anything like that?
1: Um, you know, with nursing... I don't know how long I can see myself working as a bedside nurse, um, and maybe it's because I've started in the middle of the pandemic in critical care, mm-hmm. and it might, maybe it'll be different, you know, after the pandemic has passed. Um, but you know, along related to the to the the passion and the um, the importance that I feel. For movements such as social justice, I have always imagined myself in working in some sense in public service. Um, whether that be in an elected official position or not, i I think policy and advocacy has been something that I've always been very interested in. Um, so I can see myself working clinically it for the near future because I do love nursing and I want to grow my skills as a nurse um but something that you know I've always considered is you know how else can I can I help people and maybe that that might be in advocacy or policy so I don't know
0: right yeah and you don't you don't need to know right now I mean that's it's wherever no. it goes. Yeah.
1: No, having a plan is so overrated. And that's something that yeah. <laughs> I have had to really allow myself to just kind of let go because, yeah. um, have you heard of Myers-Briggs?
0: Yeah. The personality test. Myers, the
1: personality test. Yeah. I, I don't like categorizing myself mm-hmm. or categorizing other people, but when I found out about Myers-Briggs, I was so intrigued and I, I took the test and I'm an INTJ, so I like lists and I like having goals and like, I like having things going according to plan, but I've been working on that because that oftentimes um, leads me to disappointment mm. and when things don't go according to plan, which yeah. is life in general, it can often feel like catastrophic, mm. but I, I, I'm working on not being so rigid <laughs>
0: Right, and I think like it's another thing you bring up about like the upbringing part, like you know, that's part of
1: oh, how yeah, it's very
0: tied into that. You know, we were raised to have a plan and to really go into something that you know has a clear future in wherever mm-hmm. we're going, so um, yeah, I think that I think it's I
1: mean, cool. we can probably find like 200 memes on subtle Asian traits about that, yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen a bunch, but um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I'd love to hear. Um, in your time practicing, what have been or what has been a story or an anecdote? You know, it could be whatever, but something that you've hold held really close to yourself and something that you you think of of often.
1: Oh, that's an easy question. I during nursing school, I cared for um, a actually. Which story do I want to tell? Let me think.
0: You can tell both or all of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well. I think it's it's felt very special for me when I'm able to care for um, an Asian or an Asian American patient because especially if they're Cantonese speaking because that's my family background and it oftentimes you know patients that I meet are older and so if they're Asian and they're older and they speak Cantonese I'm like oh my gosh I'm taking care of my grandma or I'm taking care of my grandpa and my I I remember this patient that I had when I was in nursing school and she was a cardiac surgery patient and you know i took care of her around chinese new year time and so she, you know as the matriarch of her family she's she's normally around chinese new year cooking up a feast for her family but you know this time she's in the hospital and she seemed depressed and i one of the things i did for her was you know bring some chinese food i cleared it i cleared it with the team they said it was okay i brought her some chinese food the next time i was in the hospital and um it was it was just such a nice experience to be able to connect with a patient that way in in a setting where she felt very alone um and she spoke english and she, but and I, th- I don't think she spoke cantonese but um she we were just chatting as i was taking care of her and you know one of the things that I'll never forget is, you know, at the t- end of my time taking care of her, she like took my hand and she was like, you know, you're your parents' American dream. And <laughs> it made me want to cry Aww. because it's just, I, as, as an affection deprived Chinese kid who never got affection, you know, yeah. growing up as a kid, that was just so, because I knew that it was true. You know, I knew that, you know, me being educated in the United States, going to an Ivy League school and, you know, achieving all these things that my my family just dreamt of and and worked so hard to help me achieve it 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 really just hit me in the feels mm-hmm. and I like cried when I got home. Um, but I hold on to that all the time. I think about that patient all the time. And most recently caring for um you know a COVID positive critical care patient who was older and spoke Cantonese. And um, unfortunately they didn't survive, but it was, it just felt so special being able to take care of this person um, and being able to, you know, interact with the family um, especially as a Cantonese speaking nurse. So, you know, things like that. If if you're old and you're Asian and you speak Mm. Cantonese you're automatically gonna get like just cemented into my heart as a nurse.
0: That's awesome. And I, I'm sure they, they appreciated that beyond like that could be known. And you know that, that's the thing about medicine that I think is really interesting is this idea of the face of medicine really changing. And it's, it's exciting to see. And I think through social media, you're able to see it much more clearer because you're seeing doctors from all backgrounds With their platforms, and Mm -hmm. to see that all these doctors are practicing right now, is just a really good feeling that we're going in the right direction towards where where we need to go in medicine.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, healthcare providers, it's rare that you have these interactions where you know a patient expresses gratitude to your face, or like a family member expresses gratitude to your face. It's it's, it often doesn't happen because things happen so quickly in the hospital and you you go from the ICU to a step down and you never see that provider again. Um, and I think, you know, something that I want to pass on to future healthcare workers is that you never know the impact that you have on a patient, whether it's positive or negative. And I think that's part of our responsibility to be you know knowledgeable about the social determinants of health to be empathetic and to listen to our patients when we care for them because we never know how it's going to impact them and i think all of our as healthcare workers we all have the goal to positively impact our patients and i think that that's one of you know the driving forces for me as a nurse i i always want to to impact my patients positively. And so that's why I'm passionate about educating myself as a non-Black person of color about, you know, the barriers that Black and Brown patients face and being more educated about that and being more educated about the barriers that my own community faces in healthcare. And it's not, there are barriers that, you know, white patients face as well. And these are all things that I'm trying to learn that I'm trying to to incorporate into my nursing practice.
0: Right. And, you know, I really like what you just said, like that. I think that is the most important thing to know when you're dealing with patients, because you need to know what are the, like you said earlier, the whole, the whole patient. Um, but Ariel, thank you so much for for talking to me today on, on the podcast. I really appreciate all your insight um, and it's been really fun talking with you.
1: No, oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun
0: yeah of course um yeah do you have anything else you want to just add
1: if there are any young future healthcare workers out there listening to this you can do it it's really hard The especially I mean my personal experience is nursing school there are so many times in nursing school when I cried even before I, I entered nursing school when I was like I don't know if I can do this but you know the road is hard but it's worth it and if we can see more people of color in healthcare you know that's something that i would love to see in the future so if you're listening you can do it i'm there to help you if you need i you can find me on instagram but you know i'm mentoring is something that i'm very passionate about as well
0: gotcha yeah, thank you so much cuz yeah, I'm I'm not yet on my medical journey. Like I'm about to apply to medical school now and so It's so
1: exciting. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm going to need all, all the good vibes um there, there are. So again, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Medspectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next
1: Monday.